This is The Guardian. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian Archive Long Read. I'm Luke Dean Arona, writer and lecturer and author of Life After Deportation. No one tells you how lonely you're going to be. Published in August 2020. From 2006 onwards, the UK prioritised the deportation of people with criminal records, so-called foreign criminals. Many had lived in the UK since they were children, but for one reason or another hadn't regularised their immigration status. I became interested in this group. Partly because familiar arguments about deservingness and victimhood didn't really work very well for them, but also because their stories demand that we connect anti-immigration policies to the ongoing force of racism in British schools, workplaces, housing, and most obviously the criminal justice system. So I went to Jamaica in 2015 and in subsequent years, I'm actually here now, to meet deported people in this situation. People who were as British as me in all but law. I interviewed people and got to know a few really well. While investigating deportation from the Jamaican side, I discovered that the UK government was funding small NGOs in Jamaica to provide services for people sent back from the UK. And this money came through the aid budget. What I realised was that the UK was using these NGOs to justify further deportations. So when people facing deportation appealed, arguing that they had no friends or family in Jamaica, and had not been there since they were infants, the Home Office would respond by citing those NGOs funded through the aid budget. Don't worry, there's a ride when you get there to take you to the UK-funded homeless shelter, and these NGOs will help you reintegrate and rebuild. This makes deportation proportionate after all. I wrote this long read to capture some of these entanglements and to try to tell the stories of people caught up in them. Since the Windrush scandal and the COVID-19 pandemic, Deportations to Jamaica have fallen drastically and the UK has pulled most of its funding for those small NGOs in Jamaica. However, the UK has continued to deport people, particularly on mass deportation charter flights, and they have justified these flights by suggesting that everyone on them is a serious foreign criminal. The point of this long read is to challenge that narrative. Deportation is an extreme and cruel practice 
which causes untold damage to individuals and their loved ones. To make deportations unthinkable and unworkable, we can't just engage in special pleading for the deserving. We need to challenge the argument that both foreigners and criminals, and especially foreign criminals, deserve their banishment. As we mark the 75th anniversary of the Windrush, we should ask how the UK's immigration system impacts people from the Caribbean today, here and there, and think about what that might still have to do with racism. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Life after deportation. No one tells you how lonely you're going to be. By Luke D. Narona. Read by Jonathan Andrew Hume. And produced by Esther Apoku-Jenny. Sitting in the computer room of Open Arms Drop-In Centre, a homeless shelter in Kingston, Jamaica, I turned on my recorder and asked Jason to tell me about his life there. In his distinct East London accent, he described arguments and fights with other residents about chores, use of the showers, missing possessions. Then, checking no one was around, he complained about the management, claiming that they spoke to him like a child and had threatened to kick him out. Nor did he feel safe when he left the shelter. People are trying to kill me down here. I need to get back to England, he said. But having been deported from the UK and finding himself destitute in Jamaica, he had few options. Jason had been exiled home. Jason was born in 1984 in Kingston. When he was about five, his mother and grandmother moved to the UK. And so, for most of his childhood, he was raised by his aunties in Kingston. He had a good childhood in Jamaica. For his wider family though, the option to move to the UK was viewed as the dream ticket. And so, in August 2000, when he was 15, Jason and his 13-year-old brother were put on a flight to London to join their mother. The official story was that they were just planning to visit their grandmother for a few weeks. This was the first time Jason had ever been on a plane, and it remains the only commercial flight he has taken. Jason's reunion with his mother, who he hadn't seen for 10 years, was not easy. Her partner was suspicious of Jason, accusing him of stealing things from the house and chasing girls. After just two months at a secondary school in Ilford, in East London, Jason got into a fight and was expelled. His mother then kicked him out of the house. I had my possessions in 12 JD bags, he recalled. I put them on top of a roof of somebody's house. I didn't have no friends. Where was I supposed to go? In February 2001, six months after arriving in London, Jason's visitor visa expired, turning him into an illegal immigrant. Without access to employment, housing support or welfare benefits, he had to survive on the streets. For most of the next 14 years, Jason was homeless, sleeping on buses and loitering around London's West End trying to make conversation with tourists, offering to help find them tickets or drugs, or just seeking warmth and company in brightly lit arcades. I was in and out of police stations, Jason said. My life was like being in handcuffs. 
His offences were crimes of vagrancy, theft, being drunk and disorderly, unpaid rail fares and fines, and skipping bail because he had no fixed address. As Jason was accumulating these minor convictions, he was also making friends, developing a London accent and coming to call the city his home. I never had a home in England, but I made a home in the places I chilled in, like Romford for a little while, and central London. I can call that home, he said. In late 2013, Jason took a trip to Wales with his friend to get away from London for a few days. But after a fight with some locals outside a pub, Jason and his friend were arrested. At that time, the police and immigration authorities were beginning to share information in new ways. And after Jason's details were run through the immigration database, the police in South Wales sent him to an immigration removal centre on the south coast of England. Jason's attempts to appeal against his deportation were fruitless. He did not have decent legal representation, and his case would have been near impossible to win, even if he had. He had lived in London for almost 15 years, but he had no partner, had no children, and had been largely abandoned by his family. He had no formal employment history. He could not demonstrate the ways in which he was integrated or had contributed, and he had a criminal record. And so, in November 2014, after seven months in detention, Jason was forced onto a plane with dozens of other unwanted migrants, many of whom had similar stories. This was Jason's second flight, the return ticket he did not want. Back then, the expulsion of Jamaican nationals received little public attention. That changed in early 2018, when news broke about the Windrush scandal in which hundreds of people who arrived in the UK from Caribbean countries between 1948 and 1973 had been wrongly detained, deported and denied legal rights. Since then, there has been a sharp fall in the number of removals to Jamaica. In February 2019, nearly a year on from the advent of the Windrush scandal, when the Home Office chartered a mass deportation flight to Jamaica, it stressed that charter flight was carrying serious foreign criminals a group who garner little public sympathy. Despite having spent half his life in the UK and never having committed a crime that would normally be considered serious in law, Jason was one such foreign criminal. Once he landed in Kingston, Jason was driven to open arms where he would live for the next three years. In Jamaica, I don't have any family whatsoever, he told me, a year after his return. His relatives who had raised him in Jamaica had since moved to the UK. It's been hard. It's been tiring. Open Arms is situated between two notoriously dangerous neighbourhoods, Raytown and Dunkirk. One time, when I visited in 2017, a group of men from Dunkirk arrived at the gates, threatening to kill two residents who had defended them and promising to return with guns. On previous occasions, men from open arms had been robbed just outside the gates, while several people told me about a resident who had been killed two years earlier, a young man who had also been deported after spending most of his life in the UK. I was unable to confirm the details of this incident, although a murder in this part of town is hardly exceptional, which may explain why there were no reports in the local media. In May 2019, The Guardian revealed that five men deported from the UK to Jamaica 
were known to have been killed in the previous year. This is likely to be just a fraction of the true number. There were an estimated 1,320 murders in Jamaica in 2019. Yet, despite these risks, most people do find ways to survive, and open arms can be an important lifeline for deported people while they find their feet. To the casual visitor, it looks like a normal homeless shelter, though its facilities are far better than other shelters in Kingston. The 60 or so men who live there have a bed each and two meals a day. The centre is fairly clean and the staff are trained to offer counselling and mental health support. However, there is a more fundamental difference between open arms and other local homeless shelters. While there is no sign of it on the walls or on its Facebook page, the centre has been funded by the British government, specifically through its aid budget. And so, while Jason desperately wanted to get out of open arms and return to England, it was in fact the first time since he was 15 that he had received consistent shelter and it was paid for by the British taxpayer. Jason was the first deported person I met in Jamaica. It was my second day on the island in September 2015 and Jason had come to a Salvation Army facility in downtown Kingston to have his picture taken by the local NGO I was shadowing so that he could then apply for his national identity card. He bounded into the room, frantic and loud, and announced that he was ready for his photo. When I introduced myself, my Mancunian accent clearly took him by surprise. In his hyperactive way, he told me about a girl from Manchester he had once dated. He then brandished his Sundico trainers, a budget sports brand in the UK, and said, you know about Sundico, innit? He was full of life, charming and intense. This was the first of many afternoons I spent with Jason. He had no money and he was not sleeping or eating very much, but he retained a vitality that was both infectious and exhausting. We mostly met up at the University of the West Indies campus where I was living, but one afternoon in September 2016, Jason invited me to his former high school, St George's College, in the heart of Kingston, to watch a football team play. In our conversations, Jason had always relished telling stories of his glory days as a star striker on the school team, and as he watched the game, he was visibly energised, shouting from the sidelines, cheering his team and sparking conversation with other spectators. Despite his enthusiasm and St George's impressive 6-0 win, Jason did not receive a warm welcome. St George's is one of the oldest and most respected schools in Jamaica, and most students are expected to go on to university. Jason had a hard time convincing people that he was an alumnus. At one point during the game, Jason felt like someone was laughing at him and he shouted out, I've got a journalist here from England who is talking to me. When someone said something about him being a deportee, he turned to me and explained, My friends from George's are all in the US. I wish they were here to see this game. In fact, Jason was no longer in contact with his former schoolmates. Sometimes he would use my laptop to send messages to people on Facebook who had not responded since his last contact. He was always reaching for connection. He didn't like to think of himself as alone. But in Jamaica, without family or friends, isolated at open arms and vulnerable to violence on the street, his abandonment was near total. The only help he was receiving came from a homeless shelter funded by the same government that had kicked him out of the UK against his will. Even after he had been sent back to Kingston, 
Jason's life was still inevitably tied to the place he had left. As a deported individual, his fate depended on the distant business of diplomatic relations between the British and Jamaican governments. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. The story continues right after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Deportation involves much more than simply expelling a person from a given territory. In a world of nation-states, where everyone should be a citizen of somewhere, the process of sending people home requires international cooperation. When states don't get along, Deportation can be difficult, which is why the British government has historically had trouble sending people to Iran, China and Zimbabwe. On the other hand, ensuring that states do get along takes work. In return for Jamaica's compliance with its immigration policies, the UK government promises cordial diplomatic relations and other kinds of political or economic favour. Open arms is just one part of this wider story. The shelter helps the Jamaican government by offering food and accommodation to a small but significant proportion of Kingston Street homeless, while the shelter works for the UK government by facilitating deportations. That's because, although deporting people to unfamiliar homelands is now a routine part of UK immigration policy, the Home Office is obliged by human rights law to demonstrate that the people they deport will at least be able to survive when they arrive. 
In letters justifying deportations to Jamaica, the Home Office regularly cites Open Arms as a local NGO offering provisions on return. In this way, funding for Open Arms comes to look less like an act of generosity from the UK government and more like a kind of strategic humanitarianism designed to grease the wheels of its immigration policy. The role deportation plays within UK-Jamaica relations became especially clear during David Cameron's prime ministerial visit to the island in September 2015. In the run-up to his arrival, Jamaicans were discussing whether Cameron would finally offer a formal apology from Britain for the ills of slavery and how he might respond when confronted with the question of reparations. Instead, Cameron offered £25 million from the foreign aid budget towards the construction of a modern prison on the island which would make it possible for Jamaican nationals in UK prisons to be deported sooner, serving out what remained of their British sentences in a shiny new Jamaican prison. There was some irony to this offer, given that Jamaica's two main prisons, which are in dire state, were built by the British colonial government in the first place. The older of the two prisons was completed in 1845, just seven years after slavery was fully abolished on the island, and 117 years before independence. Unsurprisingly, Cameron made no mention of this, and in 2016, plans for the prison stalled after a change of government in Jamaica. Funding open arms through the aid budget is part of a global trend in which rich nations spend more of their development and aid budget on controlling migration by intervening in so-called source and transit countries. There are hundreds of organisations like Open Arms on the African continent, funded by European aid money, and tasked with supporting deported people and discouraging them from leaving again. The EU Trust Fund for Africa, which was created in 2015 to tackle the root causes of irregular migration through development programmes, received more than €4.7 billion Euros of funding in its first four years. A substantial amount of this budget was spent on security objectives, fighting irregular migration, human trafficking and migrant smuggling primarily through capacity-building initiatives, so that African states can more effectively monitor and police would-be migrants. In the 21st century, borders do not simply materialise at the edge of territories. They now encircle would-be migrants long before they reach their destinations in wealthier states. People effectively run up against the borders of Europe in their home countries and in transit, when they are identified by EU-funded enhanced police information systems, secure identity chains, and surveillance drones. To justify the massive architecture of border controls in an unequal and unstable world, however, governments invoke the language of protection and care, of saving lives and encouraging development. The message of these supposedly compassionate policies is simple. To save you, we have to stop you from moving. For those who have been deported, there is often a bewildering sense of dislocation. One afternoon in September 2016, I was chatting with Jason and some other residents outside Open Arms when I spotted a young man, Kimoy, walking down the dusty track towards the shelter. I had met Kimoy a few months earlier, 4,500 miles away in rainy Scotland, when visiting him at Dungavel House Immigration Removal Centre in South Lancashire with his mother and some friends. At the age of 10, Kimoy had moved to the UK from Jamaica to join his mother. He lived first in London, some of that time in care, before moving to Scotland with his mother. 
When he was 18, he was convicted of drugs and robbery offences. He spent nearly five years in prison and one year in Dungavel before being deported to Jamaica in 2016. We started hanging out once he was back in Kingston, and initially, Kimoy seemed to be doing well, much better than when I had met him in detention. He was positive about rebuilding his life in Jamaica, and he was making friends and spending time with estranged family members, even while sleeping at open arms. But two years later, he was hospitalised at the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, located opposite open arms, after a serious mental breakdown. I met him again in 2019, after he had recovered, and over dinner at an uptown mall. He described his breakdown to me, what he called his sickness. While living in open arms, Kimoy started hearing voices. His thoughts were running too quickly and he felt that people were talking about him. Trusting no one, he began leaving open arms for days at a time and walking for miles aimlessly. One time, he was badly beaten up by police officers after straying into a wealthy neighbourhood. He stopped showering and smashed his phone after an episode of paranoia. Smoking weed almost compulsively and not eating, sleeping or washing regularly. Back in Scotland, his mother was desperately worried, unable to contact him and unable to visit him in Jamaica because of her own insecure immigration status in the UK. Kimoy told me he could not sleep at open arms. The voices were too loud, almost deafening. He was not sure if the voices were in his head or not, but they kept saying, Why are you staying here? This is not your bed. You don't belong here. Go and find where you live. As Kimoy explained to me, I felt like, I don't know where I live. If I knew where my place was, I would go there. On several occasions, he walked down to the sea, sometimes in the dark, and immersed himself in the water. One evening, he decided he needed to get out of Jamaica. Remembering a shipyard he had once seen on the bus, he decided to walk there, a distance of more than five miles. When he arrived, he couldn't climb the fence or find a way to a docked boat. He had no backup plan, but he felt compelled, somehow, anyhow, to leave Jamaica. He felt trapped on the island, alone in the country of his birth and citizenship. In legal terms, he had been returned home, but remained homeless. A few days later, he was taken into hospital. People might tell you what it will be like when you come back to Jamaica, Kimoy said. Obviously, there's a sun and sea version, but no one tells you about the loneliness. No one tells you about how lonely you are going to be. The sociologist and philosopher Sigmund Bauman once wrote that the central division within postmodern societies is the opposition between the tourists and the vagabonds. The tourists, he explained, embark on their travels by choice and prefer being on the move to staying put. But for the global poor, to be free means not to have to wander around, to have a home and to be allowed to stay inside. The vagabonds are the waste of the world, which has dedicated itself to tourist services. Nowhere is this more visible than in Jamaica, where around 33% of total GDP comes from tourism. Although most of the profits are extracted by foreign-owned companies, Jamaicans still depend on the cruise ships and package holidays that lure rich tourists for a few days in paradise. 
locals whose own mobility is limited by immigration and visa controls, depend financially on the mobility of others whose passports grant them free passage. On a global level, this division between tourists and the immobile poor is heavily racialized. For the most part, white people move freely, black people stay put. Bauman recognized that tourists and vagabonds move through the same spaces, just in different ways. This is true on tourist beaches across the Caribbean. As tourists relax, play and consume, while locals serve, pedal and clean. But it is also true on deportation flights. Until recently, the majority of people deported to Jamaica travelled on commercial flights, boarding before the rest of the passengers, seated discreetly at the back and flanked by two or three escorts. Kimoy was deported in this way. The people being deported faced permanent and enforced exile, while tourists board their return flights after a couple of weeks on the beach. These days, deportation is more total than earlier forms of exile. People who have been deported are fixed in space by the modern technologies that identify them, passports, fingerprints and electronic databases. When people like Jason are deported, their criminal records tend to travel with them. This makes it difficult for them to find work in Jamaica and near impossible to travel to Europe or North America especially as states increasingly share visa, immigration and biometric information. In 2017, three years after his return to Jamaica, Jason was kicked out of open arms. At first, he stayed near the market downtown, offering to help people carry their goods for small change and sleeping under the stalls by night. But after a fire, he had to move again. He spent his days hanging out on the street corner by a courthouse and slept outside the court by night but he didn't feel safe there, especially after a friend of his, who had been deported from the US, was stabbed to death by a local man who, according to Jason, did not like homeless, deported and mental people. By that time, Jason had lost much of his earlier vitality and the damage inflicted by deportation and homelessness showed more clearly. In previous years, we would have gone into a fast food restaurant to eat and talk, but he was no longer allowed inside anywhere. When we met up around that time, he was visibly destitute and he smelled bad. And so all we could do was spend an hour or so together in Emancipation Park in the centre of Kingston. On my final night in Jamaica in 2017, Jason showed up at the gates of the university campus where I was staying, desperate to borrow a few hundred Jamaican dollars to pay back a debt he had incurred. As I paid him into a taxi downtown, the last thing he said to me was, Listen, If you hear in the next year that I'm dead, please don't come to my funeral. The last time I saw Jason was a couple years later, when I returned to Jamaica in 2019. We spent a few hours together in Emancipation Park. He was still surviving, although he looked much worse off after two years of rough sleeping on the streets. His teeth were decaying, and his clothes were soiled. Earlier this summer, I received an update on Jason from a contact in Jamaica a security guard named Dawn, who took a shine to Jason a few years ago when he was begging just outside where she worked. In July, she saw him for the first time in months by the Burger King in Halfway Tree, one of Kingston's main transportation hubs. And she told me he was well, still loud and full of energy. Five years on from when we first met and 20 years from when he first left Jamaica, Jason is still surviving, still finding ways to keep moving. Abandoned, 
but not giving up. This is an edited extract from Deporting Black Britons, Portraits of Deportation to Jamaica, published by Manchester University Press. For more Guardian Long Reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash longread. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.